Thanks for joining us for the City Church Podcast. More information on City Church is available at www.ourcitychurch.org. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome if you're new. I'm very excited about all that Jesus is doing in our midst. Are you excited about it? Come on, you can be excited. Yeah, that's good. I am so grateful, so excited and so grateful. We had our first um, membership class uh, last uh, yesterday, and um, I got the privilege of teaching for six hours yesterday to the glory of God, so uh, that was awesome and uh, so encouraging just to see the number of people that are just um, really committed to what God's doing here. It's really exciting. So I wanted to share one thing with you before we dive into the scripture today. Um, that is that uh, we are, we really, you know, with Thanksgiving around the corner, oftentimes we really want to exemplify or accentuate the things that are godly that happen in our culture. And so, of course, um, there's actually two things I want to mention today. One is, uh, they're both about Thanksgiving. So the first is if you're here, uh, Carol, where are you? Go ahead and just stand up. This is Scott and Carol Samuelson. Both of them just come and stand up. Give them a, give them a hand. They are just amazing people. And uh, they are going to, they've invited everyone, okay, everyone to their house for Thanksgiving, okay? So if you're a student or a single or whatever your circumstances, you don't have plans for Thanksgiving, you're like, I don't know, I don't want to be alone. Well, guess what? Uh, Here at City Church, you are going to have a massive feast. And so she's not talking turkey, she's talking turkeys. So um, it's going to be a big crowd. So here's what you could do. Just go to the yellow table at the end of the service. It's right in the lobby. Or just find Scott or Carol after service and say, hey, I'd like to come. They're trying to get a count so that they can... um, you know, they can buy all the turkeys. So um, just if you don't have plans and you're like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do for Thanksgiving, don't be alone. Uh, enjoy it with some, some other people and get to know some people. Secondarily, the service after Thanksgiving, it's the 25th of, de- of November, we're going to do a very special service, kind of break from the series that we'll be in at that point. We'll be in a series called Naturally Supernatural. We'll be talking about all the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're going to take a break and we're going to take a week, uh, uh, one service um, on the 25th to talk about gratitude. And it's called Living Grateful. And you got this uh, little card when you walked in, right? Three of us did. Awesome. Great. Well done, ushers. Um, and, uh, and it just says, in a fast-paced, technology-saturated culture, it's so easy to get swept away in the hum of complaints. This is your invitation to pause, consider, remember that life doesn't have to be that way. And it's, it's going to be a whole talk and a whole morning about gratitude and about what it means to live grateful. So find that bitter, ungrateful friend you have and bring them And say, hey, you're pretty much ungrateful. Why don't you come and learn about gratitude and Jesus will challenge you and encourage your soul. So um, on November 25th, we just want to encourage everybody to invite people to this uh, service, okay? It's just an opportunity for them to experience the reality of gratitude that comes from understanding grace, okay? So very important. We encourage you to invite some people to that and uh, there'll be some more of those outside in the lobby. You can invite every single friend that you have, all right? Sound good? You're all ready to get into the scripture. We are in week three of, and this is actually the final week of how to stop sinning. So if you haven't figured it out yet, you know, I'm just kidding. It is a process to learn the, uh, the freedom that Jesus brings. But uh, this day in particular, we're going to be talking about the nature of freedom, what freedom really is. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding as we study the scripture. We'll be doing the last chunk of Romans 6 today. God, we need you. Thank you, God, that even as we sing songs to you, that you visit us and that your power is evident even as we worship and exalt you. 
Lord, I thank you that your presence is here right now, that you're with your people, that we get to fellowship with your Holy Spirit collectively in these gatherings on Sundays. Thank you for the privilege of doing that. Holy Spirit, teach through me today. Let this be your word, not my word. God, none of us, including me, are interested in hearing my word. I pray that you would speak your word by the Holy Spirit to every heart and that you would draw each of us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, good, 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 good. So um, what is freedom? You know, what is freedom? Freedom is something that obviously in this country uh, and in the, you know, really in the whole world, but especially in America, we talk a lot about and we discuss a lot. But the nature of freedom is something that often escapes us. Um, I pulled some different thoughts on freedom over the years. Uh, Bertrand Russell, one of the great English philosophers, said that freedom in general may be defined as the absence of obstacles to the realization of desires. So in other words, when everything his idea is that when everything's out of my way so that I can pursue desires, that's freedom. Um, Kurt Cobain said that punk music is freedom. It's saying, doing, and playing what you want. In Webster's terms, nirvana means freedom from pain, suffering, and, exter- and the external world. And that's pretty close to my definition of punk rock. I have to admit, Kurt Cobain had more influence in my young years than Bertrand Russell did. But uh, either way, uh, Henry David Thoreau said that all things are wild and free. Janis Joplin said that freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing. And that's all that Bobby left me. So obviously her, her freedom wasn't going so well. Bob Dylan said that no one is free. Even the birds are chained to the sky. Nelson Mandela said, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Ben Franklin said that only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Freedom is something that, you know, for some reason kind of escapes us, kind of you know, is one of those things that's difficult to really define and get our, get our mind around. And in America, we have a partially true, partially deceptive idea of freedom. And it centers around this idea of autonomy. Autonomy. Now, autonomy is a simple word. It's one of those compounds words that we can pick apart. Auto means self, right? Like autopilot is your self Self-pilot, you know. And so auto and nomos, autonomy, nomos means law. So the word autonomy literally means self-law. One who gives oneself their own law, not subject to the control from the outside. Now there is a good side of autonomy, isn't there? In the Kendrick home, we have uh, the universal symbol of absolute autonomy and freedom. And I brought it today. There it is. That's it. That is autonomy right there, self-governed, baby. That is not subject to the control from the outside. We've got the goof on the back. He is, uh, he's riding high on a motorcycle. Um, we've got the stains to prove that it's freedom. And, um, and you know, this is, this is my little three-year-old Noah's uh, undies. Um, in fact, this is his uh, dress of choice. In fact, if it was up to him, this is all he would wear ever. He thinks he's from the Jungle Book. So um, I get home and he's like, Dad, let's wrestle, you know. And he's just, just in these bad boys. And let me tell you, it is the cutest thing you've ever seen. I'm sorry if you have kids. Mine are cuter in their undies. But, um, but uh, you know, it's just, that's, that's freedom. You remember, like, when you finally learned to ride a bike and like in my neighborhood, my mom would go, uh, you know, come home when the streetlights come on, okay? So I would go out, and when the streetlights came on, I had to come home. But until then, I was just on my bike, liberation, you know? And then I remember 
the time that I, I'll never forget this, so clear in my mind. I was never an avid bike rider. It's not that I enjoyed bike riding. It was just a means to an end, you know. And so um, I remember the day that I turned 16. You know what I did? I went down and I took a test. I took a test that was 10 questions. I got eight right and now I had a permit. And four months later, after taking a um, driving school, because you could do it in four months if you took driving school, six months if you didn't take driving school, and there was no way I was waiting those extra two months. So it was four months with a uh, driving instructor that used to fall asleep all the time during the driving instructions. That's a whole other story that I'll somehow find to fit into a sermon one day. But um, don't fall asleep on the job in Jesus' name. But, uh, but uh, after four months, I got my license. And at that point, getting my license, my brother had already left for college. And he had left behind his 1986 Honda Accord, gold with the pop-up headlights. And that thing was just sitting there from the time he left in September to the time I got my um, license four months later. And I just looked at it every day. And I just said, you will be mine. Oh, yes. And the day that I got my license, I got in that car and I turned it on. All four cylinders roaring, you know, you know, and and I drove right to my girlfriend's house, Christina Rose, who I later married. And uh, and on the way there, the tape player started to smoke. I freaked out and called my mom, you know, (laughs) like, what do I do? The tape player smoking. But in that moment, when I got in that 1986 Honda Accord, I had liberation. I had autonomy. I was self-governing. There is a good side of autonomy. There is a good side of freedom, of self-government, of liberation, of having options. We love options, don't we? I mean, how many flavors of ice cream can they actually create in the world? And they're still creating because we enjoy options. You know, let's stick some raisins in there. Nah, let's stick pretzels in there. No, I mean, there's a million different flavors and, and, and different kinds of clothing. You know, you go to a store and it's like, I want to buy a shirt. Okay, here's 7 billion options. Which one do you want? I want the white one. Okay, here's 4 billion now. Which one do you want? I mean, so many options, so many different opportunities, but autonomy is a double-edged sword, and pure autonomy is genuinely a myth. A myth. It's not real. There's no such thing as real and pure and absolute autonomy. This idea of, of pure autonomy became popular in the age of enlightenment where people began to elevate the mind and reason above all other divine thought. And they thought if we could just be freed to permit ourselves to follow our reason, to follow our understanding, if we could be freed from all the constraints of religious thinking and divine thought and instead be liberated to you know, follow our own thinking, that would create genuine freedom. But what we found is as the ages passed and as time progressed, individuals who were seeking freedom instead found, yeah, slavery. So, you know, in the 60s, they said that you should free your mind. And it created a generation of addicts, not like the one at your house, but addicts, (laughs) overdose, death. They said, free your body. And it produced unwanted children and abortion and divorce. They said freedom of speech, which of course is a great thing, but we've pushed it so often to such an extreme that now we have the proliferation of pornography and children getting stripped naked with pictures put on the internet and people making money off it and somehow it's okay. 
And how far does this craziness go until we realize that our idea of freedom is actually producing slavery? That in our desire, in our ambitions to find real freedom, we find addiction, shame, regret, depression, and remorse. That people that have sought freedom and said, no, no, I don't want anyone telling me anything. I want to be free. I want to launch out. I want to, you know, be propelled into, and, and all we find at the end of the day is addiction and bondage. Something about our idea of freedom is flawed fundamentally. I remember in high school, and I'm going to butcher this because I really didn't read much of the book, not going to lie. In high school, we read a book called The Awakening. Anybody ever read that? Okay, don't quote me good. Two of you, awesome. Don't look it up online because I probably mess up the story. But I remember it's about this woman who like wrestles with her freedom and finally decides that she doesn't want to be the mother of her two or three kids. She doesn't want to be the wife of her husband. She wants to be free. And so she abandons her family to pursue some other lover. And at the end of the day, the other lover moves and all this chaos happens. And I think at the end of the book, she just kills herself. She just goes off into the ocean and allows herself to drown. And I remember reading that book as a high school student. And we're reading and we're talking all in high school about the ideas of freedom and liberation and feminism and all these things. And I'm thinking to myself, this is stupid. This is stupid. What about her kid? What about her kid that never has a mom because of this selfish woman? This isn't freedom. This is slavery. There's something bigger than this. There's something more valuable than this. And so our problem with freedom is not a problem, guys. It is the problem. So I want to show you how old it is. Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to get to uh, Romans and wrap up this series, but we're painting the picture. Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can go there. If not, it's fine. It should be on the screen. Um, so Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 4. If you've been around church at all, you know the story. This is the story of Adam and Eve. Now, the serpent who was uh, Satan said to this woman, that was Eve, you will not surely die. She's going to eat from this tree that God commanded her not to. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Oh, freedom. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the root of the issue right there. I want to be autonomous with no one governing me. Only self-government. No one over me. Knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw it, that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her distracted, jacked up Al Bundy husband who was with her and he ate. Oh, okay, yeah, sounds good. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were free. Oh, wait a minute. They knew that they were naked, right? <laughs> It wasn't that they were free. What they realized is we are naked and we've been wearing fig leaves ever since, right? They knew that they were naked and they decided to try to cover up their lack of freedom that they tried to find through this false idea of having no one over them. 
Now, if you've been around for the last three weeks, you know we took a little departure last week and talked about unity. But the last two weeks before that, we've been walking through verse by verse how to stop sinning. And we talked in part one, if you remember, this idea that God's perspective really is the starting place for freedom. If you're going to try to labor and labor and labor over the addictions, the bondages, the fears, the struggles, the anxieties that you have in your life, you will forever be confounded by their power. But if instead you decide to say, I'm going to look at God's perspective, I'm going to see myself as he sees me, and I'm going to believe that when Jesus died, I in fact died. We talked all about identity in Christ, and out of that identity comes the perspective that brings freedom. Then part two, we talked about this idea that you're no longer under law, but you're under grace, and we must become what we are, right? And so we have an obligation to become what we are by putting to death the old man, by believing in the truth of the new man, and walking through that process. Now I want to talk to you about the nature of freedom, and I want you, my ambition today is for you to find real freedom because it is available and it is amazing. So let's dive into Romans chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can go there or you can follow along. Romans chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. I'll start with, we'll read all the way down to 23 eventually, but let's begin with verse 15. What then? Now we covered verses 1 through 14 in the last couple weeks. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Critical verse here. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Do you not know? That there is always someone over you. That's what he's saying. Do you not know that there's always someone over you? That you only have two. This is a revolutionary idea in the psyche of a Westerner. That you actually, in reality, only have two options in this world. There is no option of pure autonomy because that would lift you above God, which is impossible because a creation cannot be lifted above the creator. And so you really only have two options biblically set before you. Option one is slavery to sin. Option two is slavery to God. Those are your two options. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how rich you are, how strong you are. It doesn't matter any of those things. No matter who you are, you've got slavery to sin or you've got slavery to God. So let's look at option A. What does slavery to sin look like? Well, let's pull a couple passages from the scripture that help us discern what slavery to sin looks like. In Genesis 4, God speaking to Cain. This is in the New Living Translation. I just like this translation. It says, you will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out because this is what slavery to sin looks like. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Message translation of Proverbs chapter 5 gives us another picture of what slavery to sin looks like. It says the lips of the seductive woman are oh so sweet. Speaking of sin, and this woman is embodying this idea of sin. Her soft words are oh so smooth, but it won't be long before she's gravel in your mouth. Me and my kids have been watching uh, Bear Grylls and uh, Man versus Wild, you know. And it's amazing the things he puts in his mouth. You know what I'm saying? It's like, this is a frog, great in vitamins. You know, and he just like bites the head off and it's like, oh, 
man, I would have probably just waited for, you know, the camera crew to stop filming and taking the cheeseburger out there. But, but gravel in the mouth is one thing that just, just the idea of it. I mean, imagine just scooping up some gravel and just being like, hey, take a chomp on this. Terrible. Gravel in the mouth, a pain in your gut, a wound in your heart. I love this line. She's dancing down the primrose path to death. She's headed straight for hell and taking you with her. She hasn't a clue about real life, about who she is or where she's going. About who she is or where she's going. So the demonic strategy that we see in these passages is that it is God's, uh, it is Satan's intention, look at me, to fascinate you with the gifts of God to such an extent that you begin to worship those gifts rather than the giver of the gift. Okay? What I mean by that is whether it's the gift of sex, whether it's the gift of food, whether it's the gift of wealth, whether it's the gift of friendship, whether it's the gift of acceptance before your brother, whether it's the gift of influence or the gift of status, rather than using those things for God's glory, the temptation that you will deal with in slavery to sin is instead of having those good things serve you, you bow down to serve them. This is the essence of slavery to sin. Many of us know it well. Let's look at verse 17 because it's not the only option that God puts before us, right? You all with me today? Come on, turn to the person next to you and say, this is good preaching. You should pay attention. Come on, tell them. Yeah, this is, whew. He, this is God talking to you. And we know you need to hear this. So verse 17, but thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves to sin, I love this line, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So hold on a second. In the midst of my slavery to sin, God intervenes, right? And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So in the midst of my inability to break the slavery of sin, God intervenes and he shifts something. He gives me a spiritual heart transplant. The Bible calls it regeneration, calls it the new birth, gives it all different types of names. But at the core, it is a heart transplant where I wanted to lie and now I find within myself this desire instead to serve. Where I wanted to lust, but now I find instead a desire to give. Where I wanted to take, I find instead this desire to honor. You see it all through the scripture, old and new, where Jacob is the deceiver and in an encounter with God, he becomes Israel, the, 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 whole, the father of a nation. Now, uh, we, we see it in Saul, who is one who persecutes Christians, and God changes his identity, and he becomes Paul. We see this again and again and again, and we realize that what it's saying is that the spirit is made alive in Christ. The body still needs to be crucified, and the soul needs to be renewed. I read a story recently about a guy named Michael McFadden. He's in his 40s. He works for the fire department in one of the towns in California. And uh, while he was working one day, he started having some chest pain. And uh, ignored it for a little while, went to the doctor, and they uh, diagnosed him with congestive heart failure in his 40s, right? And so for a few months, he tries to live with a few different pills and medications and things. It's not working. He keeps having these heart attacks. His heart is failing. Finally, he's rushed in. This is amazing to me. He's rushed into the emergency room. I mean, you watch this on TV. I know you do. They cut him open. They take his rib cage and just pop it open. Then they get in there and they unscrew the screws around his heart and take it out. 
They take somebody else's heart that hopefully doesn't need it anymore, puts it in, screw it back on, close down the trap, sew it up, and he gets up and he's good. Now, he's got a new heart. The reality is he needs some rehabilitation, right? The reality is he needs some physical therapy to get him back up to snuff. But the problem was fixed in that the heart was removed and put back in with a new heart. And this is the reality that we see in verse 17. It says that although you were a slave to sin, you became obedient from the heart. You're going to need some physical therapy. You're going to need how to reorient your body. You're going to have to crucify your flesh and renew your mind. But God planted a new heart in you, and this new heart will feed the rest of your body the life that is found through Jesus. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you've become The transition, slaves to righteousness. Interestingly enough, it doesn't say, having been set free from sin, you become autonomous. You're just self-governing. You're over everything. No, you're not. You're not. And if you want to pursue that, you will inadvertently be put right back into the slavery to sin category. And so it doesn't say that you have option C. Option C doesn't exist. There's option A, which is slavery to sin, and option B, which is slavery to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't have this obligation, this conscience for righteousness before you were slaves to sin. And before you start saying, well, that sounds kind of cool to be free from righteousness. In verse 21, he clarifies, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? Because the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, this is, a, this is a struggle for us. I'll be the first to say that especially in our culture, whether you realize it or not, you will struggle with this, probably. I mean, there's a slim chance that you may not if you grew up in an amazing family or something early on taught you these things. But for the majority of us, we have this overdeveloped concern about submission, don't we? And this overdeveloped lack of trust for authority. I remember, you know, with the election, everything that was going on last week, um, I heard one guy on the news say that, you know, this election, it ended up not being so, but he said this election seems to be in the margin of corruption. And I thought, you know, normally you hear people say in the margin of error, but the margin, and that just like witnessed to me. I was like, yeah, it's probably the margin of corruption. Why? Because we, I just have this bent. I have this bent to the fact that somebody is not being honest. Like, I have this bent to question and to not be sure. And whether, you know, it's your parents that acted like children, whether it's your pastor that tried to control you, whether whatever your circumstances or situation, you're clinging probably to some false sense of autonomy, like you can control things. Mix that together with this unhealthy trust for authority. And when we say that you're going to be a slave to God, something inside of you starts to bristle and you go, no, no, I just want to be free. Not realizing that your unwillingness to submit to God robs you of the freedom that your heart is looking for. So I have very good news. Very, very, very good news. Slavery is not a good master, but God 
is a good, good master. We sang it today. It's from Romans 8. He works all things. He makes all things work together for my good. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. He's a good master. Well, why? Well, let's round off Romans 6 with this last verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a nuance there that you may have missed if you've read this passage a number of times. There's a nuance there if you've been in church and you've heard that, you know, someone said the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life. Hey, if you didn't know the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, hey, if you, you know, the wages of sin, and you just kind of rattle these passages off and we miss the nuances that are so critical to what Paul was trying to communicate to the church at that time. That sin operates on wages. It says the wages of sin is death, but the wages of God is he. Wait a minute. That's not what it says. It says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. What I'm telling you is there's a gift that God gives you, and that gift is your freedom, and that freedom is under his authority. And then when you have that freedom, you are truly free because when you're a slave to God, you're free from every other master. Sex, money, work, desires, status, fears, can not control you because you've submitted to a higher authority. I want you to see it today because people all throughout history have seen it. In Psalm uh, 84, throw that up there for me. Psalm 84, bing, it says this, for a day, look at this, look at this, he got it. The psalmist understood what I'm saying right now. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. In other words, you know what? It doesn't matter where I go. If I'm with you for one day, I would take one day with God than a thousand anywhere else. He gets even clearer. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. In other words, what he's saying is low on the totem pole with you is higher than everything else. He saw it. He saw it. He saw the reality. Daniel saw it in the lion's den. If you know the story, maybe you were a little kid, somebody taught you the story about a man named Daniel, a prophet from Jerusalem that was transferred into Babylon. He was uh, one of the wisest men of all time, and he was given authority in Babylon to lead and to rule as a slave and as a Jew. And this man would not worship the false gods of Babylon. And so the other individuals that were leaders of the day became jealous of Daniel. And they concocted a plan so that the king would pass an edict in which anyone that worshiped another god except the king for a certain amount of time would be thrown to the den of the lions. And I love this story. I love it because Daniel just walks. I know he heard some type of drum and bass rock music in his mind, in his, you know, in his ears when he did this. But you know what happened was they said, listen, if anybody worships any false god, and Daniel just goes to his house, opens up his window real wide for everybody to see and just goes like this. You know what? You can throw me in some den. You can throw me in some den. I've realized that you have no control over me, that I am not your slave, that one day with God is better. Daniel saw it. Stephen saw it. If you know the story of Stephen, they're throwing rocks at Stephen because he's testifying of Jesus in the New Testament, and they want to kill this man in Acts chapter 4, I think it is, and they're throwing rocks at Stephen, and they're saying, we're going to kill you. They're enraged at the fact that that Stephen is declaring that these Pharisees killed Jesus, and so they're throwing rocks at Stephen, and they're trying to kill him, and he's not saying, oh, come on, no, don't throw the rocks. Instead, he says, listen, he says, I see Jesus, and he's standing at the right hand of the Father. I see it. You might try to kill me down here, but there is a higher authority that I'm submitted to and he's pretty excited about me standing up for him because right now in heaven, he's standing up for me. 
And in that moment, he saw it. He saw what? He saw the big idea today. If you remember one thing, remember this, that the highest form of human freedom is slavery to God. The highest form of human freedom is slavery to God. What if, what if you and I, in our westernized version of life, embrace the reality so dangerous as this? What if you and I said, you know what? I know everybody's fighting for autonomy. Everybody's fighting for self-government. Everybody wants freedom. Everybody wants to do what's best for them. If it makes you happy, then I guess it's okay. But there's something bigger than if it makes me happy. There's something bigger than autonomy. There's something bigger than striving for a false sense of freedom. There is slavery to God. And that slavery to God actually is freedom because he is good. And in glad submission... I give myself to God. You know, I think of Paul. It's just so ironic how life works, you know? Half of the, almost half of the book of Acts is talking about the apostle Paul on his way to go stand before Caesar, right? Now, in his day, thousands upon thousands of people worshiped Caesar. And Paul, this slave who no one cares about, is tied up, going from ship to ship to thing to thing, from prison to prison, often forgot about all to see Caesar, right? And in that day, from that perspective, it would seem that Caesar made the right decision by worshiping self, and Paul made the wrong decision by worshiping God because Paul was a slave and Caesar was the king. And yet today, no one is pouring over the passages that Caesar wrote day after day and week after week. Yet God used Paul to write the very book that we're studying today. Because slavery to God is the highest form of human freedom. You know, here's the issue. What if you and I genuinely stopped wrestling with this? Is it possible that we could come to a place personally where we stop wrestling with this. All right, all right, God. All right, Lord, God, you're, you're God of my money. All, all, all right, all right, today. All right, all right, God, you're God of my, t- all right, I'll make a deal with you. No deals, no deals. What if you and I got to a place where we just said, he is Lord, Lord of all. Trust his goodness. Live from the gift of righteousness. Embrace his rulership Because his rulership is freedom. (sighs) Finish up with this. Wrap up the whole How to Stop Sinning series. We talked about how to stop sinning. First to see things from God's perspective, right? And we said that when Jesus died, I died with him. And that identity enables me to be free. So I consider myself, reckon yourself. Remember we talked about this? Dead to sin, but alive to God. The following week, we talked about this idea that we must become what we are. Must become what we are, and it means that you have an obligation by grace to dethrone the old king, to take him down because sin will try to continue to rule your life. It means that accountability is probably a good idea because you will get played by sin. It is smarter than your reason. We have to stop living in neutral and begin to embrace biblical community because we cannot just exist not sinning. We must exist advancing. And then today, we understand the nature of freedom. That the highest level of human freedom 
is slavery to God. Stay on your feet. I want you to hear these words today. This isn't going to be up on the screen. I want you just to hear this as I read it. <coughs> you know, I, what, do I, what do I dream about and think about as I was prepping this sermon, as I prepped this talk? You know, my heart just dreams about a people that are just gladly submitted to the things of God, that it's not twisting your arm, that it's not, all right, all right, always a wrestling match, but there's something in you that dies and something in you that's born. I have to be honest in my own life. It is very rare right now. I've got sin struggles. My wife would tell you that. I get angry at times. I get frustrated. I become selfish. I get distracted. There's all different types of things that happen that I sin and that I fail and that I confess those sins. I'm by no means perfect. We're on our way all of us together in Jesus. But one thing that for me, God shifted over the last few years is this issue of autonomy. I don't want that freedom anymore because I found that it's not real, that it's just a masquerade, it's just a false fog that ends up just in slavery to sin, self-worship. But what I have found is that slavery to God actually is freedom. And so at this point in my life, it's very rare that I am wrestling with God about money, about time, about my will. But somehow my will and his will have joined forces. And my heart yearns that as I grow in this, what if we all grew in this? What if we all grew in a place that said, you know what, it's not about, okay, God, I'll make a bargain. I trust that you're good. And I understand that real freedom is slavery to you. And so I am in glad submission glad submission, even to the things that I don't like that you say. I want to read these words to you and I want you to listen with your heart and then we're going to sing about his love. These are words that I'm sure you've heard before. I want you to hear them again in the context of what I just shared. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Let's pray. God, stir our hearts today. Stir our hearts to believe, God. God, stir our hearts to come to a place of glad submission. Lord, there's people in this room that have different areas of their heart that are occupied with self rather than God. I pray that you would chase them down right now. And by your grace, that you would bring each of us to a place of understanding of what real freedom is. That we wouldn't chase full, pure self-government, but that we would realize that, God, that you've 
destined us to work best as we are slaves to righteousness and to God. God, I pray that we would wholeheartedly embrace the obligation of slaves to say yes with all of our hearts to the glorious privilege of submission to you. Thank you, Lord. We hope you've been challenged and encouraged by this City Church podcast. Visit City Church at www.ourcitychurch.org.